Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. In our steady existence on proclaiming sex distinction, we have grown to consider most human attributes as masculine attributes for the simple reason that they were allowed for men and forbidden to women. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Women and Economics, 1900. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews, and I'm speaking to Helen Beebe about deviance in philosophy. Welcome to the program. Hello. Now, could you give us a bit of background information about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm a philosophy professor at the University of Manchester in the UK. I've written a book on the philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. Uh, I've written an introductory book on freedom of the will aimed at students and a bunch of papers that are mostly around freedom of the will, causation, laws of nature. So I do metaphysics, basically. That's the branch of philosophy I'm in. Um, But I've also become really interested in the last few years in why women are so poorly represented in philosophy. So we only make up about a quarter of people in permanent philosophy jobs, and the proportion is even lower when you look at professors. And that's not just in the UK. Women are underrepresented pretty much everywhere where anyone has actually looked up the statistics. So I wouldn't really call that a research area of mine. I don't publish papers on feminism or anything. But I did write a paper about how being classed as deviant, and I think women are deviant in some sense in philosophy, is one of the ways that we can try and explain why there are so few of us in philosophy. So could you give us a definition of deviance in philosophy? (laughs) I'm not sure I can define it, but the basic idea, and I just borrowed this from social psychologists, is that in pretty much any sphere of life, we carry around with us the idea that some people are normal or typical and some people aren't. So, for example, we expect primary school teachers to be women, we expect college professors to be men. And those expectations might not even line up with the statistics. So in the study that I talk about in the paper, people were asked to think about the typical American voter and kind of while thinking about the typical American voter, they were asked to give that person a name Uh, the person that they were imagining, Um, and 82% of them assigned a male name to the typical American voter. Obviously, men do not make up 82% of the electorate in the U.S. So something's going on there with people's association between voting and being a man. They're thinking of men as somehow being the primary participants in politics or more interested in politics or something like that. And then the next part of the study was to ask people to explain why there's a discrepancy in voting levels between men and women. Um, I have no idea whether there is a discrepancy, um, but it doesn't really matter that's what participants were told for the sake of the study. And what happened was that people tended to explain the discrepancy by appealing to features of the deviant group, in this case the women. So 
their explanation for why allegedly women didn't vote in such great numbers as men were all couched in terms of women. Women are less interested in politics. Women are too busy to get out and vote or whatever. Or they weren't all in terms of features of women, but there were more that were in terms of features of women than there were in terms of features of men. So the worry is that when you have a difference between a kind of a typical and a deviant group, a group that's kind of the normal group and the, norm, the group that isn't normal, like, for example, we've got a big difference in the number of men in philosophy and the number of women in philosophy, uh, the explanations that people will automatically reach for are the ones that focus on the features of women. And that can lead to the thought that if you want more women in the profession, they're the ones that are going to have to change. Like, they're the ones that are going to have to make an effort to fit in with the dominant culture the people perpetuating that culture can just kind of carry on as they were because the dominant culture fixes what the norms are and uh, you're going to have to go along with that culture if you want to be part of it. And I think to, to some extent that gets things exactly the wrong way round. It's the culture that needs to change rather than women having to change in order to fit in. So this idea of deviance is kind of once you think of a, a particular demographic group like women in the context of philosophy or whatever as not the norm, then you'll tend to explain why there aren't so many of them in terms of features that they have or lack rather than features that the men or the dominant culture lacks. And that kind of puts pressure on women to kind of just go along with the dominant culture rather than thinking about, no, maybe it's the culture that needs to change and not the women. So what was it that inspired your interest in deviance in philosophy? Well, as I say, it's really an interest in just why there are so few women in philosophy Women are just as good as men are at philosophy. Uh, If you look at the results that we get at undergraduate levels, there's really no difference between them. And yet, the numbers really start plummeting as you go through master's, PhD, and on to permanent positions. And so that's something that really needs explaining. And I think thinking in terms of deviance makes us think harder about the nature of the culture that we're part of and about which aspects of it might be uncongenial to women and think about how we might change that rather than thinking about how women might try harder to reconcile themselves with the culture. Can you explain about implicit bias and stereotype threat? Yeah, so again, this is all coming from social psychology. So the basic idea, and this connects with what I've just been talking about, starts from the idea that we associate certain kinds of characteristics with certain kinds of people and then we just assume that any one of that kind we come across is going to have those characteristics. So you might feel more afraid walking past a group of black youths on the street than you do if it's a group of white youths. So on some level, uh, it's in your head that black youths are just more threatening or dangerous than white youths are. Or you might be assuming that the obese person that you're interviewing for a job is lazier or less competent than the thin person you're also interviewing. Or in an academic context, you might assume that a woman is more suited to a caring or student-focused role, like being a welfare tutor, while her male colleague is more suited to being something like a research director or have a more kind of leadership role. So the idea of implicit bias is just the idea that most of us harbor these kinds of prejudices, but that we do it unconsciously. So when you're sifting CVs for a job, say you can consciously harbour no racist or sexist beliefs at all. I mean, if someone asked you whether you had any racist or sexist beliefs, you might perfectly, sincerely say, no, I really don't. And yet you still might rate the CV of a candidate with a white-sounding name or a male name 
as better than the exactly equivalent CV of a candidate with a black sounding or a female name. There have been lots of studies done on this kind of phenomenon, and they did a big study with CVs, for example, and they found exactly that. They kind of took exactly the same CVs and changed the names at the top to white names versus black sounding names or women's names versus men's names, and they got people to evaluate them. And the ones with the male names just got rated more highly than the ones with the female names, even though the CVs were exactly the same. And the same thing happened with the white-sounding names versus the black-sounding names. So implicit bias is about the unconscious attitudes we have about other people. And then stereotype threats, kind of the flip side of that. It's about how we think of ourselves. So if you're a member of a counter-stereotypical group, So if you're a woman or you're black and you're presenting your work to a philosophy seminar or being interviewed for a philosophy job or whatever, and if you're really made aware that you don't fit the stereotype, like, for example, everyone else in the room is a man, that's something that you're going to notice when you walk into a job interview or to present a paper, you're likely to perform less well. So there was a really nice experiment that was done with seven-year-old Asian girls taking a math test So when they were asked before the test to color in a picture of something that triggers the female stereotype, like a doll, they performed worse. And when they were asked to color in a picture of something that triggers the Asian stereotype, I think it was a pair of chopsticks, they performed better. So it's like when they're going into the test being reminded that they're a girl and so bad at math, then they don't do so well. But when they're going in being reminded that they're Asian and hence good at math, they do better. So those sorts of stereotypes are just, they're supposed to be unconscious beliefs. We may not even know that we have them until we do, uh, say, a test that reveals these things. And there are plenty of those online that people can just go and do. So we're sort of uh, unconsciously subscribing to beliefs that consciously we don't think that we have. And those can affect our behavior in all kinds of ways, both the way that we treat other people and the way that we perform ourselves. There's another really uh, nice study that's not really about, I guess, implicit bias so much, but I really like it. Um, It's quite a recent one, which is about what the authors call, this is a bit of a mouthful, field-specific ability beliefs. So it turns out that when you ask geographers or art historians or physicists or whatever, to what extent does succeeding in your particular field require raw intellectual talent, you get really different results from the different subjects. So mathematicians and physicists and philosophers tend to think that success requires raw intellectual talent to a really great extent, whereas people in psychology, evolutionary sciences, and sociology, for example, don't think that success requires raw intellectual talent to nearly such a great extent. Um, So now if you map the extent to which people in different subjects think success in their subject requires raw intellectual talent against the percentage of PhD students in that subject who are men, you get a really strong correlation. So very roughly, the more strongly people think that raw talent is required to succeed in your subject, by and large, the lower the proportion of PhD students you're going to find who are women in that subject. That's a really interesting result, and I think it plays out in lots of different ways. So, for example, there's been research done in the sciences on the way in which undergraduates perceive their own and their peers' success. So male students tend to downplay how much work they're doing, for example. So when they do well on a test or on an essay or whatever, 
they think of themselves as having done, done well because they're just sort of effortlessly brilliant at it, whereas when female students do well on an exam or an uh, essay or whatever, well, it's, that's because they worked really hard. And it's sort of a short step from that to the idea that the female students are kind of having to make up for some sort of natural deficiency in talent. Um, and if that's how you think about why you're getting good grades, or I'm having to work really hard, I'm not effortlessly brilliant like all these guys are, you're just not that likely to think that you're cut out for a career in maths or engineering or philosophy, indeed, or whatever. So there's a whole bunch of social psychology stuff out there that gives us a handle on some possible reasons why women might be underrepresented in disciplines like philosophy. It's interesting that you've brought that topic up because I know I was in a, up at a philosophy conference in Sydney and a woman up there was telling me how and she actually dropped out of philosophy because many years ago when she was doing a philosophy degree she got very high marks and the professor called her in and said now you've had to work really hard to get these marks haven't you and she said yes I have and he said well there's no point in you going on any further in philosophy because you obviously don't have any natural talent that is fantastic that's (laughs) <laughs> That's a really, really lovely example of that phenomenon, I think. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's quite an explicit and overt example. I think a lot of the time it works in a much more subtle way, but that's, that's exactly what I think happens a lot. Women are, because they do tend to not think of themselves as kind of effortlessly brilliant, and they don't, you know, they're kind of more honest, I guess, about how much work they're doing. And they have it in their heads, as I think kind of everybody does in philosophy in a way, at least unconsciously, that, you know, in order to be good at this, you've got to just have this kind of innate brilliance at it. And so they think of themselves as not very good at it, even though they're doing fantastically well. (laughs) Um, You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Helen Beebe about deviance in philosophy. In 2009, the Philosopher's Magazine ran a story about the low proportion of women in the UK philosophy departments, and you contributed to this. Would you be able to read out the passage from your article for this for us? Yes. So the article was saying that the proportion of women drops off pretty sharply between undergraduate and postgraduate level, then it drops again between PhD and permanent academic employment. So... Here's what the bit of the article that's kind of talking to me says. BB says this tapering off of women may be at least partly caused by a culture of aggressive argument that's particular to philosophy and which begins to become more prominent at postgraduate level. She says, so this is me talking now, I can remember being a PhD student and giving seminar papers and just being absolutely terrified that I was going to wind up intellectually beaten to a pulp by the audience. I can easily imagine someone thinking, this is just ridiculous. Why would I want to pursue a career where I open myself up to having my work publicly trashed on a regular basis? Mm. So could you explain a bit more about this? Yes. so the point I was trying to make was that there's a kind of level of aggression that's often displayed in philosophy seminars that's just come to be regarded as normal and acceptable. It's just kind of part of the cut and thrust of open philosophical debates. And it really shouldn't be regarded as normal or acceptable, I don't think. And one reason why not is it plays straight into worries about implicit bias and stereotype threat. If you unconsciously think that women aren't really cut out for philosophy, 
you're going to give the woman giving a presentation a harder time than the man because you're going to think her work isn't as good. And then as a woman, you're in this very masculine, macho, aggressive environment, and that's going to just draw your own attention to that stereotype, and then that might make you perform less well. But it also goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning about deviance. When you take that kind of macho-aggressive culture that we tend to find in philosophy seminars, once you start thinking of that as normal, and given that this is an environment that is, generally speaking, not going to make women feel very comfortable or at home, there's a worry that, as it were, uh, the onus is on the women to just kind of man up and, uh, you know, not take it all so personally. This is just part of what we do in philosophy. You have to just kind of take it on the chin and, and move on, like, rather than thinking, ooh, maybe it's the culture of aggressive questioning in the seminar that's the thing that needs to change and not, it's not that the women have to kind of man up and get used to it. What type of reaction did you have from this article? <laughs> well, I got, I got one response that I especially liked that appeared on a the blog of a professional philosopher in the U.S. who said, and I quote, Helen Beebe, though I'm sure you're a wonderful director of the British Philosophical Association, which I was at the time, please think of handing over the reins. You don't know the first thing about the fallacious use of anecdotal evidence or the problems of shitty causal inferences that reinforce naturalist assumptions dominant in the culture, and please tell me that you don't think the problem is that women can't cut it. Now, by, this is a little while ago, by the standards of kind of like Twitter abuse these days, that's pretty mild. Nonetheless, this is coming from a, a, a colleague, in a sense, a professional philosopher. And there's a kind of comic level of irony, I think, about that response. So, first of all, he assumed that I was saying that the culture of aggressive argument that's particular to philosophy is somehow a necessary feature of philosophy, and that's what he was taking exception to. But any remotely charitable reader, I think, would have assumed that I was being critical of that culture rather than taking it as something that can't and shouldn't be changed. So it's kind of an example there of a man interpreting a woman's words in the worst possible light, right? And you might take that to be an example of implicit bias. Um, or, I don't know, maybe he was just looking for a fight. Who knows? But then the icing on the cake is that he addresses what he takes my view to be by just kind of hurling insults at me and suggesting that I should resign. <laughs> so displaying just the kind of macho-aggressive behavior that he claims to be finding so unacceptable and to be the very thing that we should be changing. So I, I, that's an extreme example of the kind of aggressiveness that you can get. Uh, the way that people behave in seminars is normally not nearly that bad. Nobody ever suggests that anybody should resign. I think it's making that point, but that's a way that people can respond, particularly when it's a man responding to a woman. Could you give us a couple of examples of how philosophy students have experienced overt sexism? <laughs> well, I, there are lots of examples that I could give, and I'm sure um, in any walk of life it's possible to give examples, but there was a student of mine who gave a talk at a graduate philosophy conference a little while ago. She was the only woman giving a talk at this conference. And afterwards, another graduate student, a male, obviously, told her that her talk was uh, pretty good for a girl. Um, he was probably trying to be funny, uh, but he really failed very badly if that's what he was trying to do. I mean, that's a pretty mild example. Um, but I think it's uh, that sort of thing goes on a fair amount of the time, I think. But actually, in a way, I think the bigger problem, because it's much more pervasive than overt sexism, and as it were, harder to 
harder to call out is the kinds of behavior that don't amount to overt sexism uh, and the kind of implicit attitudes that we get that are more worrying. So the way that already in their first year, for example, male students tend to dominate seminar discussions, female students are more likely to think that they can't do logic. Um, Again, as I've said, the male students tend to downplay how hard they're working, whereas the, the female students don't. Those sorts of things are much harder to deal with because it's not a matter of something just, you know, someone just saying something that's obviously outrageous where other people can say, oh, you shouldn't have said that, uh, or you can't behave in those ways. It's much more sort of insidious and unconscious and based on very sort of broad features of our culture that we're mostly just sort of don't really think about and just take for granted. Mm. Do women, in fact, in general, perhaps just more often than their male colleagues, find the competitive and aggressive atmosphere that is often present in the philosophy seminar uncongenial, independently of any effect that may have biostereotype threat? Yeah, so I haven't done a poll, to be honest. And it's certainly true that a lot of men also find that competitive and aggressive atmosphere uncongenial. So it's certainly not just women. And indeed, it's not all women. I mean, I think because that's the sort of professional culture that I was brought up in, I think I don't notice it as much as some of my women colleagues who, for whatever reason, were brought up in a professional culture that was just kind of a bit nicer and indeed... I think I'm not completely immune to behaving in that kind of way myself. When that's the culture that you're brought up in and you have to fit into it early on in your career, it kind of becomes second nature. So it's it's not easy. You can't just say, oh, look, let's just be a bit nicer to each other and expect things to improve just like that. It's quite hard. I quite often have to kind of check myself when I'm asking a question or responding to someone to just kind of like tone it down a bit and be a little bit less sort of hostile you know your hackles rise and you feel kind of under threat and you kind of strike back and sometimes that that doesn't (laughs) doesn't come across very well so I think it's a difficult thing for people to do to to tone that down to make the atmosphere nicer and less aggressive so yeah as I say uh, this is certainly not something that is applies to all women or to just women but I think just in general when you're in a situation where stereotypically male characteristics are being exhibited like aggression and competitiveness that's a way of making people who don't fit into the male culture by virtue of being women that's an additional way in which they can find that difficult so you might just not like aggressive and competitive behavior because you don't like aggressive and competitive behavior which is a perfectly reasonable thing not to like so that can be something that men and women equally might not like but then for women there's this is an additional problem that that's a way of kind of flagging the stereotype, right? This, we're in a male environment now and you don't fit into it. So there's a kind of additional problem for women in that kind of environment. So how do you think that the current situation could be changed? Well, I think, I feel quite optimistic. I think there are lots of ways it can be changed. And to some extent, I think it already is changing. So I've been talking about the atmosphere and philosophy seminars, but actually that's got a lot better than it was five or ten years ago. That's been a real improvement. And I think it's been a real improvement because people have really been making a conscious effort to change the way that seminars are run, to try and think about the silly things like, well, they're not silly, the order in which you get people to ask questions, people, you know, the speaker finishes speaking, people put their hands up, 
think about which people you pick on in which order, don't allow certain people to dominate the discussion, call people out if they're, you know, being a bit of an arse and being a bit aggressive. So I think there's been a real there's been a real kind of conscious attempt to change things in that regard and things have changed, which is really nice to see. So yeah, I think the atmosphere on philosophy seminars is changing a lot and quite quickly. Things like implicit bias are getting to be pretty widely known about within universities. In Britain, anyway, lots of universities, maybe the majority of them, will now make sure that some implicit bias training is part of your training if you're going to be on a job panel and so on. I mean, that's not an easy problem to solve because it's very difficult to get people to not act in accordance with their unconscious beliefs because precisely they're unconscious, but at least some efforts are being made. Uh, So at least... Part of the problem is that gendered attitudes and behaviours are already pretty well entrenched in students by the time they get to university. So the way that seminar discussions tend to be just dominated by be dominated by men, the way that women tend to understate their own achievements and abilities, the way that men more than women try to affect an air of effortless brilliance rather than coming across as hardworking, conscientious. Changing those sorts of attitudes, I think, is a really hard nut to crack because they're already there before any of us in the profession can do anything about it. But I think that we can and should try to crack that nut. I think there are things that we can do to try and improve the situation. And a lot of people in Britain and I think also in Australia and the US are really trying to think quite hard about what sorts of strategies we might employ to try and get over those sorts of hurdles. So I feel quite optimistic about the future, possibly naively, but there you go. Do you have any future study plans within this field? Well, I guess I, as I say, it's not really a research area for me. It's more of a kind of practical issue uh, to do with how can we change the situation. So I suppose for me, in a way, one thing that I've come to realise, worrying a lot about the underrepresentation of women, is that, of course, it's not just women we have to worry about. Minority ethnic people, massively underrepresented in philosophy, particularly black people. There are all sorts of worries about disability and the way that people with disabilities are excluded. A lot of these things are not particularly specific to philosophy, but I think some of them are. So I've sort of become more interested in other underrepresented groups as well and sort of thinking about the extent to which the reasons why women are underrepresented might also apply to other underrepresented groups. And so how can we apply the sorts of thinking that we're applying to the case of women to other other groups as well? Uh, I think it's difficult and the issues are sometimes not the same. Like, for example, I think there's probably much more overt racism going on than there is overt sexism. Disability creates a whole different range of problems, but I think some of the very fundamental issues to do with the, the stereotype of the philosopher being basically a kind of white middle-class male, that's doing a lot of work in excluding other groups. So if we can kind of get to grips with that, that's going to help not just women in the profession, but also other minority groups. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. And I've been speaking to Professor Helen Beebe about deviance in philosophy. Well, that's all we have for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given lots of food for thought.